Yeah, good to be here. I I can't talk much about uh, being pregnant because I got way too much to talk about here. But we are super thrilled. God is good. Um, after losing a baby last year, it was tough and kind of just the anxiety of going into this one. But things look healthy at this point. We're 10 weeks. We have the ultrasound. We saw him jumping all around there. And my hope is to be like Steve Bjorn said someday, uh, to have two fantastic daughters and then sneak in that son in the third. But if I get three girls, praise God, too. That's awesome. God is good. Um, would you pull out your Bibles? We're going to be in the book of Esther. Uh, also put a finger in the book of Jeremiah. We're going to be jumping around a bit today. So this morning's sermon is, is different than any other Esther series or sermon that I've done so far. In that typically what I, I think is important to do and what we have done is we've kind of walked through somewhat chronologically through the book a chapter at a time and, and taking each chapter as it is, we're looking at smaller themes throughout the book as the whole book itself is a narrative. It's one big story. We've, we've looked at these smaller themes, uh, looking at things like idol to self, uh, Christian accountability, uh, the, the difficulties of religious and racial tensions, things of this nature. But today we're not going to look at a chapter. Uh, so again, very different style that I normally like to preach. We're going to do kind of the the huge bird's eye view of a very important theme, theological theme uh, throughout the book of Esther. Uh, That is the providence of God. We'll talk about that as we go, but we're going to look at uh, how how God's sovereign hand works and how our free will works. And I'm going to solve the greatest mystery in the last couple thousand years in the next 30 minutes. So be prepared. That should be should be good here. So As we're jumping in, though, I would ask that we stand. I'm going to pray, and then we'll just read the word of God together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to share your word. Uh, And it's Sundays like this that preparing uh, is overwhelming. Uh, I, I don't know how much to include and how much to pull out and what to say and what not to say at times. Uh, but God, I'm giving it my best shot and I'm trusting that you're uh, working things for good. So I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the special revelation you've given us of the context of our lives, that you are a creator God, a God who loves us, a God who wants to know us, and that you've shown yourself uh, to us through Jesus Christ. I pray that we, at the end of this today, would be in awe of you. I pray that we would not be overwhelmed, but that we would be um, overwhelmed with uh, just a great respect for who you are, and that we would love you and that we'd want to worship and follow you more. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray all these things. Amen. So I'm going to read Esther chapter 4. Do I sound louder to you than normal? I sound pretty loud to me. No? Okay, that's right. Uh, Esther 4. Verse 14, I'm just reading one verse and we'll, we'll sit down from there. After I read, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you're going to say, thanks be to God. Good. We're getting there Four. if you keep silent at this time, this is Mordecai talking to Esther. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, you may take a seat. Um, I'm I'm picking this out because this is kind of uh, what I would consider the apex or the most famous verse in the entire book. You read it a lot. And when you read this verse, there are so many uh, different nuances of how you might read into this particular verse. Uh, Particularly, 
we are 2,500 years removed from its context. So how do we interpret this verse? It's one that gets interpreted multiple different ways. And I want to look at two very common ways that we would understand the meaning of this verse. Um, again, just to give you very, very brief background, if you were not in the Esther series at all, um, Esther is a woman who is queen. She is married to the Persian king Xerxes. Uh, there is uh, a proclamation that all the Jews are to be annihilated at a certain point, And a man uh, who is Esther's uncle writes to Esther and he says, you need to do something as the queen to try to help uh, this situation that we're in. And Esther writes him back and says, I can't do anything. I'm not powerful. And this response that we read in chapter four is Mordecai, her Esther's uncle writing back to Esther saying, no, you should try to do something. Who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So how do you interpret that? One way, I will simply call this the human lens that you can interpret this statement is the following. Esther happens to be where she is because of uh, just normal life, everyday circumstances, cause and effect. Here's Esther. She happens to be the niece of Mordecai. She happens to not have parents. She happens to be beautiful. She happens to have been chosen by the king to be her bride. She happens to have not gone back to Jerusalem. She just happens to be in Susa. And so here we are, very natural, no hand of God, just cause and effect relationship. She is in the capital and Mordecai is asking her, use your queenness, use the relationship that you have, use the situation that you're in so that perhaps you might be able to help us. Right. Is that a good understanding of the text? Maybe a trick question. Yes, it is. That's a, that's a good, appropriate understanding of the text. Life is happening. Here she is. Mordecai is asking her, hey, you're in this situation. You're the queen. You of all people have more influence and more power than anyone here. You ought to use your queenness to try to do something to help your people. That is a very appropriate interpretation within the context of the story of Esther. Very natural. But then over here, I will go through what uh, I simply call a divine lens where a lot of Christians would read this uh, with the background of being a Christian, and they would say, when we read, and who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this, we would read into that, and we would read, well, God clearly placed Esther in this position so that she could be used during this very different time. Right. So God is orchestrating. God is moving. God put her in Persia. He put her in Susa. He made her beautiful. He gave her the cheekbones. He gave her the jawline. He gave her whatever. He gave her the relationship. He put her in the right place in history so that she could be used for this great event. Is that an appropriate interpretation of the text? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to ask a lot of questions this sermon. They may feel like trick questions, but they're not. Uh, So divine lens. God seems to have placed her there. We could read that into the text. And and human lens, it just seems like life's happening. Here she is. She ought to use what she can to help her people who are in need. And ultimately, the question that I'm getting after is, well, who's responsible? What roles do we have to play here? Is it Esther, on the one hand, just doing everyday life, or is God doing something here? So what is God doing in the story of Esther? And ultimately, because we're a church, because we're gathered as the people of God, we're going to get to ourselves. What is God doing in the life of Josh Karstensen? What is he doing in the life of every single one of us in here? Is he uh, moving things with his direct hand or are things just kind of happening? Cause and effect, just life keeps going. How does this relationship work? But starting in Esther... What role did God play in the story of Esther? 
Now, that's a big question, isn't it? And that's a question that really brings up many, many more questions. What role does God play? So first of all, you can ask questions along the lines of, well, does God know what's happening in Esther, in the story of Esther? Does he know what's happening in the city of Susa? Uh, We would assume, yeah, he knows what's happening. Well, did God place them there? Did God desire that Xerxes would be king? Did God desire uh, that Persia would have conquered Babylon, who conquered Jerusalem, to put him in this place? Did God want um, Haman to set this decree that all the Jews would be killed? I... What's God doing here? Uh, did God know this would happen beforehand? Or was God learning things as they happened? So when Esther became queen, was God going, oh my goodness, I didn't see that happening. Here, all of a sudden, she is queen. And we smile at that, some of us. But in, um, I'll call liberal theology, that's probably one of the biggest thoughts coming out of the 20th century is process theology, the, the idea of God learning in process where he doesn't know what's happening in the future, but he's moving and working as things happen. So what is God's role in all of this to begin to answer these questions? And I, I want to reiterate as much as possible to begin. I am in no way going to solve One of the greatest mysteries in the last 25, 2,000 years of sovereignty and libertarian freedom. I'm not going to be able to solve it all, but I do want to look at what the Bible has to say about both and the relationship that they have together. So this is a lot more of a, a theological weighty topic, but it's one that I believe we leave here knowing God better. And when we know God better, we worship him better. So it's very very important that we uh, at least have this dialogue or this understanding of how God works. So in order to illustrate um, how God works in the story of Esther, we kind of have to take a step outside of Esther itself. Uh, But we're going to start in Esther because it builds there. We're going to start in Esther chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. So turn there if you want. Esther chapter 2. Again, we're asking the question, what role did God have in the story of Esther? And then eventually, what role does God have in my life? So Esther chapter 2. Verse 5, now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. I, I can't go into all the history of what happened here, but basically after David came Solomon, came the dividing of the, of the nation of Israel into two kingdoms. The north Israel was uh, taken out by Assyria, and then you have the south, Judah. In the south was the capital of Jerusalem. This is where the center of worship happened. This is where God's temple was built, that Solomon had built. And in Esther, we read that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in, at the end of verse 6, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carried away Jerusalem. So we have these events. You can read about them in 2 Kings 24 and 25, where under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, they invaded, they conquered, uh, they conquered the entire land of Judah, and eventually they got to the capital city of Jerusalem and wiped it out. They knocked out the temple, they knocked out the homes, they knocked out the walls surrounding the temple. And so my first question for us, and these aren't trick questions, really, but is who conquered Jerusalem? It's in the end of Esther, verse 6. I just read it. It's a long name, so it's in the N. Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, great confidence, right? Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. 
we, the, you can read that all over the Old Testament. It's everywhere. Um, that, that is a known historical event. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was the hand that conquered Jerusalem. But is it that simple? You know I'm about to say, no, there's a surprise. So let's get there. This is where we're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 21. I am going to read a ton of scripture, and I am totally okay with that. Jeremiah 21, 1 through 10. This is the word that came from Jeremiah, from the Lord, when King Zedekiah sent to him Peshur, the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah, the priest, the son of Messiah, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us. So if those names were confusing, you had a group of people. This group of people sent word to Jeremiah over here, and this group of people was saying, Hey, ask God something for us. This is what they want him to, this is what they want Jeremiah to ask. Verse 2, inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. So these people over here are asking, hey, Jeremiah, can you give out a shout to the Lord? Perhaps these people who are surrounding our city will leave us and God will be merciful to us. So this is Jeremiah's response in verse 3. Then Jeremiah said to them, thus you shall say to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what God is saying via Jeremiah in response to the question. Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon. So he's talking to the Jews here uh, against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. And I will bring them together into the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you, says God, talking to the Jews, with outstretched hand and strong arm, in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Afterwards, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people in this city who survived the pestilence, sword and famine, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them, nor spare them, nor have compassion. Verse 8, and to this, the people, and to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. Verse 10 is key. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. This is a nice little Sunday morning passage, right? Like you, you read, you see all these nice uh, acrostics of Jeremiah 29, and we think, oh, God's got great plans for the city, plans for a great future. I've never seen this on anyone's wall at home. <laughs> Verse 10, for I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good. Okay, so who's responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem? First, we learned it was Nebuchadnezzar. Well, clearly, it's more than Nebuchadnezzar, though, right? Yes, it's God. God himself is saying, I have set my face against Jerusalem. 
I will destroy this city. Uh, flip over four chapters. It gets more descriptive. Uh, Jeremiah 25. I'm going to start in verse 3. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you. This is Jeremiah speaking to the people. But you have not listened. You've neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all of his servants and all of his prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land of the Lord has given you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not offer other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet... He says, yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to do your own harm. Starting in eight. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Okay, again, he's talking about a pagan king. Nebuchadnezzar is not a God fearer. He's not a God worshiper. My servant And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote to them destruction and make them a horror, a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. He's saying, I'm going to wipe out everything that makes them happy. The voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. This is very explicit. He's saying, I'm going to do this work. I'm going to do this at my hand. And then he gets even more prescriptive, and it gets harder for the Western ear to hear. So after 70 years, something's going to happen. Verse 12, then after 70 years are complete, this is 70 years of Babylon coming in, destroying Jerusalem, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans. For their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it. Everything is written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them. That's of Babylon. And I will recompense them according to the deeds and the work of their hands. God is saying, just said, I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar to wipe out Jerusalem. But once that happens, after 70 years, I'm going to now hold Nebuchadnezzar accountable for his actions, and I'm going to punish him for his wrongdoing. Do we have a problem with that? Does that grind against like anything in us? Thank you, Eric, for being honest. Yes, it does. And it gets even better. The promise is after 70 years, God is going to punish Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to punish Babylon. And how is God going to do this? Well, he's going to do this at the hand of Persia, uh, which will get us to where we are in Esther, under the king Cyrus. So Cyrus in 539 conquers Babylon, conquers um, that whole nation. And so now the ruling power is Persia. You might remember Cyrus being king was a great thing for the Jews because Cyrus was a pluralist and Cyrus uh, let the people go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. You read that in Ezra chapter one. 
But what's so fascinating about this decimation of Babylon at the hand of Cyrus is we read about this in Isaiah 44 and 45. If you want, you can go there. If you want to just listen, this blows my mind. This is God talking about how um, he's going to use Cyrus. Isaiah chapter 44. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, he shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So he's talking about Cyrus and he's saying, Cyrus is my servant. Cyrus is going to tell the people, go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, relay the foundations. And he continues in verse 40 or verse one of chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, his anointed. This is strange because, again, Cyrus is a pagan. His anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you. Again, he's still talking to Cyrus and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the door of bronze and cut through the bars of irons. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, whom you call or who called you by your name for the sake of my servant, Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I have called you by name. God is still talking to Cyrus. I name you even though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no one beside me. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? Okay, now here's the kicker in all this. Isaiah is writing about God's words to Cyrus. Isaiah is an 8th century prophet. Okay, you're talking 150 years before Cyrus is even born. That God is saying, Cyrus, I'm going to use you. He calls him by name. There's even extra biblical historians uh, who have written about Cyrus reading this and, and him going, oh, my goodness, I better actually do this because this was written about me. My name has been written years before I'm even on the scene. So back to Esther, is God moving and working in such a way that he is orchestrating something great here? Clearly, right? I, I, I hope I didn't just read huge sections of Jeremiah and tell you that this was written far before someone's lifetime for us to go, I don't know, maybe he's doing something. God is doing something very hands-on here. I mean, if this is not the hand of God, I don't know what is. So the question is, does God move and govern all things to accomplish his purpose and his will, right? Well, what does this mean for us? Is, is God the puppet master, right? Here's, here's God, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to do this. Cyrus, you're going to do this. Are they pawns in a chess game? 
Do they have any volition? Do they have any choice? I mean, if God wrote about it 150 years before it happened, did Cyrus's parents even have a question about how to name their kid? I mean, that sounds like a stupid question, but that's serious, isn't it? Like when you get down to the, the finiteness of it. I mean, if God said it was Cyrus, what if they named him Jimmy? Then all of a sudden Isaiah would be wrong. But that's not what happened. So how does this relationship work? We see this all the time, just in kind of general, kind of fun culture. Uh, I was watching uh, a movie with my daughter a couple weeks ago. She loves dogs. She loves puppies. And we were watching Where the Red Fern Grows. Great movie. Anyone seen that movie? It's fantastic. It's on VHS. It's just a, it's just a thriller. Well, there's a scene in the movie where little Billy, that's his name, Billy, uh, he wanted a pair of hunting dogs. And his family was really poor, so they didn't have any money, couldn't buy any dogs. And Billy's going, man, he's talking to his grandpa, Grandpa, I really want some dogs, and God's not giving me the dogs. He says, I've been praying. I've been praying and praying and praying, and God's not giving me the dogs. And Grandpa, oh, sweet Grandpa, what does Grandpa say? He says, oh, Billy, you got it all wrong. God can only meet you halfway. He says, you've got to pray but then you've got to do all the work and then you'll get them dogs. Now, is that really a biblical picture of what we have here? I don't think so. It's it's one that we see a lot. Certainly culture gives examples like this. Well, you do your part and, and pray and maybe God will mix in a recipe where if you're working hard and you're praying, then maybe something great will happen. Is that how it works? Is that how the hand of God works? Is that how providence works? So let's get very theological here. Providence. What is this idea? Because I've learned much from my great friend Rich here. Providence. The the first part of that is pro. It means before or in front of. The Latin root is videre, which we get our English word video from, to see. So the literal meaning of providence is to see beforehand. Um, but theologically, it's, it's a lot more than just seeing. In terms of simply seeing beforehand, where God sees what I'm going to do tomorrow morning when I wake up, we would call that foreknowledge. But providence has a lot more uh, of God actually moving and working and directing and causing things to happen. So the providence of God is God governing all things in the universe. Now, we live in a very interesting time, culturally speaking, when it comes to this idea of providence. See, for many, many, many years, providence was something that was just assumed, by and large, within culture. Um, We talked about it all the time. It was one of the first cities of our entire country, Providence, Rhode Island. The idea that God is moving and working. Uh, We saw it in a lot of common literature. Uh, The Wealth of Nations was a book that uh, we saw the, the hand of God mysteriously moving and working. But nowadays, we're way too uh, mature for that. We're way beyond any sort of God moving and working, having any sort of causal power in the universe, right? So as a culture, by and large, we believe in a closed mechanistic system. Everything is closed to any sort of external divine forces, So there's a cause and effect for everything that happens. There's nothing external. So there should be, in our culture, no talk of the hand of God moving and working, creating calamity, as the Bible says, or even creating great things. We just, you know, put that to kind of religious talk. 
right? Which is interesting. Religious or spirituality has kind of been this thing that culture has accepted really just for good feelings, but not for truth whatsoever. Truth is to be found only in science and science is empirical. It's a closed mechanistic system. There is no hand of God. But what do we do in our world? Because as Christians, as people who have a worldview, we believe that God is still moving and working. And the Bible says he is. So we have a tension here. I want to help bring about what I believe is some of the obvious part of this tension. And I'm going to ask you guys some questions and you're going to help me out here. So first question, I'm going to ask a number of questions. Uh, If you have the answer, I want you to explain it to us. What makes grass grow? The sun. Yes. What else? Water. Seed. Dirt. Soil. Right? Well, the good Christian will say, uh, 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 haven't you read Psalm 104.14? You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and for the plants for man to cultivate. What about ice? What makes ice? What's the average secular humanist normal person going to say? What causes ice? Cold causes ice. What do you need first? Water. Man, this is a good lesson in biology. You need water, right? H2O. And you need it to be a certain temperature, right? And then when water reaches a certain temperature, what happens? It freezes. Ah, ah, ah. Haven't you read Job 37, Job 38? By the breath of God, ice is given. Right? Who feeds the birds? Oh, you Christians. Come on. Bunch of Christians in here. The birds feed themselves. Come on, right? I feed the birds. I mean, I've got a beautiful hummingbird feeder outside my house. We take some water. We put it in a, in a pot. It boils. You put sugar in it. You dye it so it's cute. And you put it out there. So who feeds the birds? I do. Right? But uh, uh, uh. Matthew 26, as you all pointed out so clearly, God feeds the birds. Look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly father feeds them. Right? If you were to take a dice and throw it on the ground, what is going to cause that a certain number to come up? Chance, it's not really the term I'm looking for, but it's the physics of the throw, right? You've got a certain object with a certain mass and a certain velocity and blah, blah, blah. I don't know all the science. I'm a theologian, not a scientist. You throw it all out there and you, if you know all those things, you can calculate, can't you? What's going to happen? What number is going to show up? But... That's not what we read in Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is holy from the Lord. What about the greatness of the Roman Empire? Why did the Roman Empire rise? And I think we'd probably start with, oh, under Alexander the Great, they conquered Persia. That's probably a good place to start, right? But Job 12:23 says he makes nations great. He destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. What causes failure and what causes success, right? We talk about resources. We talk about hard work. We talk about all kinds of different things going into the equation of which creates success. But the Bible says something differently. So do we see a tension here? Yes, we got a lot of good Christians in here. There, there is a tension here, right? So you're on the airplane It's a shaky ride. You land and someone yells out, oh, by the blood of Jesus, you landed the plane. Right. And someone over here is going, I'm pretty sure there was a pilot like 10,000 hours of flight school might have helped. I don't know. 
how does this work together? Like, I think at some level, to be an educated Christian, we have to understand how these things work together, don't we? Because I don't think you want to be the guy who's sitting over here saying, yep, by the blood of Christ is the only reason why this plane landed. Or, uh, yep, God's the only one who feeds the birds and God's the only one who causes the grass to grow. Is that true? Yes and amen, that is true. It is true that God does all these things. Absolutely, we affirm that. But we also know a lot of the how these days, don't we? We know how ice is made. In the last couple hundred years, we've had fantastic um, advances in science and understanding the means by which God governs and rules the world. These are good things. They're good to understand. This is why we love science. These are good, healthy things to understand. But what we have done as a culture, as we've become more and more secular, is we've placed the advancement aside, and instead of ascribing to God how he does things, we've taken God out of the equation altogether. And we've just said, well, plants grow because of photosynthesis. I think that's right. Whereas we might used to say, or I think the proper way to say is, God uses the process that he created that from the beginning of time, he said, let photosynthesis be the process by which something grows. Is that agreeing with me? Okay. Amen. Good. This this is fun. Instead of acknowledging that this is how God does things, culture has taken God out altogether. And I think that's where we've made the mistake. And so here's where I want to take this tension and and try to shed a little bit of light. And then I'm going to say, I don't know how it all works. And then we're going to sing. Um, (laughs) That's what I'm going to do. So as things over here are happening and over here, I mean, the natural explanation, there is a cause and effect, right? These are natural things. Theologically, we will call these second order causes. Second order. God created all things. He created things with properties very often, and things are consistent with their properties. Second order causes. Under second order causes would also come human action. You and I have the ability to make real, actual choices. We, that is affirmed again and again and again and again. So that's second order cause. Over here is what we'll call first order causes. This is God creating. This is God sustaining. This is God getting exactly what he wants in a universe in which he created. First order cause. So how do first and second order causes work together? This is a big question. And I think it's a question that becomes troublesome when we start to say things like, well, first order cause, God wanted or God ordained Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Jerusalem. Second order cause, Nebuchadnezzar, on his own free will volition, wanted to conquer Jerusalem. It was his desire. He wanted to do this. There was no part of him going, God, no, don't make me do this. Where the problem lies is when all of a sudden now he's responsible. Where Nebuchadnezzar is responsible. And this is all over scripture. So how do we reconcile these? Where God in first order causes ordains things to happen, yet people through second-order causes are held responsible for their actions. How does that work together? I have no idea. I really don't. And I want to read you a couple quotes, which I think are 
absolutely brilliant from the theologian and um, professor Wayne Grudem. He says this, he says, it's better to affirm that, co- that God causes all things to happen, but that he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices, choices that have real and eternal results for which we are held responsible. Exactly how God combines his providential control with our willing and significant choices, Scripture does not explain to us. But rather than to deny one aspect or the other, simply because we cannot explain how both can be true, we should accept both and attempt to be faithful to the teachings of all of Scripture. I want to try to give one little uh, example to help make this more palatable. Uh, Has anyone seen the movie Gladiator? It's a fantastic movie. It's one of those hero man movies. Gladiator, it's a great movie. At the very end, there's this fight scene between uh, the gladiator, Maximus, uh, who is Russell Crowe, and kind of this evil king. Uh, What was his name? I forget the name of the king, but basically he's walking Phoenix in the story. And my question is, who kills Maximus? Walking Phoenix does. Then you remember the night before the fight, uh, Maximus is chained in prison and Walking Phoenix comes in and he shanks him before the fight. And eventually they're in the, they're in the arena, they're in the Colosseum, they're fighting. And at the very end, Maximus dies. Walking Phoenix kills Maximus, right? So that is a true statement. It is true to say that Walking Phoenix killed, uh, Russell Crowe. But it is, yeah, yeah, that sounded weird. In the movie. But it's also true to say, that David Franzoni killed Russell Crowe. And who's that? He's the writer. He's the writer of the story. Now, if your mind is really sharp, you'll, you'll see an inconsistency in this analogy. And I'll address that as well by my friend Wayne Grudem. He says, of course, someone may object that the analogy does not really solve the problem because the characters in a play are not real persons, but they're only characters with no freedom of their own, no ability to make genuine choices and so forth. But in response, we may point out that God is infinitely greater and wiser than we are. While we as finite creatures can only create fictional characters in a play, not real persons, God, our infinite creator, has made an actual world and in it he has created us as real persons who make willing choices. To say that God could not make a world in which he causes us to make willing choices, as some would argue today, is simply to limit the power of God. It seems also to deny a large number of passages of Scripture. So going back to Susa, was Esther where God wanted her? Absolutely. He placed her there by his sovereign hand. He placed Xerxes on the throne. By a sovereign hand, she was the niece of Mordecai. By the sovereign hand of God, Esther was in the right place because he put her there. But also, she was there because she was there. Cause and effect. She just was there. Now, I, I don't even have time to address any sort of issues of evil, of 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 the real world of evil, but I will say one statement, and I know it's not enough, but God never causes evil to happen, ever. Evil is real. There is a real struggle and fight. I don't have time to address how this works, but God never causes evil. Don't confuse ordain and cause. God is never the author of evil. We see that so clearly. When something bad happens, it breaks the heart of God. And there is some mystery in that, I understand. 
I understand there's absolutely mystery in that. But I want to wrap this all up, and and I'm going to try to land this plane. It's a bit rocky, but how does this apply to us, and why is this so important? I believe that the story of Esther is so important for us today, and I've said this before a couple times in the series, because Esther, the story itself, is all second cause events, isn't it? We don't read anywhere in the story of Esther first cause actions by God. You don't read, and this is what God is doing, and this is why God did that, and, and this is what the people were thinking. We read a narrative. We read a story that's all cause and effect. It's, the story seems to be a closed mechanistic system. The story seems to be all second cause events. And guess what? So is most of our reality, isn't it? Most of our city... Most of the average person who is your neighbor sees life that way. The same way that if you just took the story of Esther out of the Bible, you would see life the exact same way. Just cause and effect. Just second order events. So how do you get outside of a worldview that gives you just cause and effect? Just second order events. I think this is where I want to give our application because it's so important. And I hope it gives you insight into how most of our city thinks. I'm going to read one more quote. I'm going to say a couple sentences, and then we'll pray. This is by Karen Jobs. She uh, has been an incredible resource for me, one of the, the better, com- best, I would say, commentators on the book of Esther, um, and really where I'm getting a lot of my themes from. She says this. She says, The uncertainty that results from God's absence in the text teaches by example the most basic principle of biblical hermeneutics. Without divine revelation, the human experience is inherently ambiguous and cannot be rightly understood. Historical events can always be construed either for or against God's existence and activity. Man, isn't that true? Without Esther fitting into a context, into a greater Old Testament, into a greater narrative of God and a people then you can read the story any way you want. And the same would be true to us. If you just look at an average life and you don't step back from the in and out, what am I going to do on a Thursday? If you don't step back and look at the bigger picture of context and you cannot get divine revelation out of that, you're stuck in all second order causes. I think context is so important for us as Christians. And I think the way that we get to context is by asking questions that are universal questions. These are questions that go outside of our everyday experience, experiences. And these are questions that every single person has, whether they're willing to talk about it or not. Everyone wants context to their life. Everyone. Everyone wants context to their being. Everyone wants context as to their existence. Everyone wants context as to their purpose. And it's only in revelation... Not the book, but in God revealing himself that we actually get context. This is why James and I in 10 days are going to fly halfway around the world to give a people a context for their existence. A context that starts with God as creator in Genesis and moves to a story set that says, here's the context. This gives answers to the biggest questions that you have. And the same would be true of us today. Without revelation, namely the revelation of Jesus Christ himself, We have all cause and effect relationships. But where divine breaks in, 
All of that changes. This is why Jesus Christ is the linchpin, isn't it? He breaks cause and effect. Jesus Christ's birth is not a cause and effect. What was the cause of that naturally? Nothing. She was a virgin. His death and resurrection, breaking cause and effect, breaking second order causes, bringing all back to divine revelation through first order causes. I know that was a lot. I hope that was helpful. I left you with some big hanging questions, but I think it's really important that we wrestle with these issues because these are issues that are brought up in the story of Esther. Would you pray with me? Father God, you are a God who gets um, what you will and you move in such a way that all things happen according to your great purposes. Lord, that doesn't mean that you are a calloused God. It doesn't mean that you cause evil. It doesn't mean that you don't break when the ones we love are hurting. And God, in that we also know that we have true libertarian freedom, true genuine freedom, and that our actions have consequences. God, I pray that we would be a people who recognize your work, and I pray that we'd be a people who recognize our need for revelation, our need to see something greater than second cause effects. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.